to make sure that we have leaders who are pursuing personal holiness, that we ourselves are growing in grace. And so, Father, help us this morning to, to see you, that we may know you aright, that we may worship you aright. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last week, we, we looked at, we finished up with widows, we talked about the ministry of, of older women, uh, especially older widows in the church, and then we got into uh, the first part of the last half of chapter 5, which is dealing with how do, you, how do you deal with church leadership, men who are in positions of authority in the church. And we saw um, in verses 17 and following how to care for pastors, that they are to be held in high esteem, that they are to be honored. In fact, they're worthy of double honor, especially those who labor and work hard at preaching and teaching. These are men who have basically, they have dedicated their lives to the service of Christ and the service of His church. And then Timothy moves into another area, and it's one that um, I don't know how you feel about reading as you, as you hear this. Um, I often wonder how Timothy responded to this when he read it. Because now he's going to talk about, now how do you chastise elders? How do you discipline men who are in danger of turning aside if they have not in fact turned aside? And again, remember, it's it's important to remember that as we're encountering these things in this letter of 1 Timothy, that it is frankly, it is a very high likelihood that, the, there's, that there's a reason why these topics are being mentioned in this letter. What's Timothy? Timothy is taking Paul's place at Ephesus. And he is going to be uh, Paul's representative to Ephesus. And there's problems in the Ephesian church. Paul had told them uh, toward the end of the book of Acts prior to his imprisonment in Rome that from amongst themselves men would arise who would ravage the flock, who would have no concern for them, and who would be bringing in error and frankly leading people astray. And so Timothy, who is a young man, who is um, probably somewhat reserved by nature, who tends to be more timid, and uh, especially when you're considering that, you know, here he is, he's dealing with people who are older than he is, who are from Ephesus. Timothy's not from there. He's an outsider coming in. And so here you have all of these things. And so Paul is trying to encourage him and give him, here's how you handle these different situations. And so let's go to verse 19. How do you deal with men who are falling off the straight and narrow? 
do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his holy angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Now, when you're dealing with men in, in positions of authority, you do offer them a level of protection. And that level of protection is you don't take it when it says do not receive, it, it, it do not accept, it is you reject accusations against a pastor when it is a one-on-one -on -one, he said, he said, or he said, she said. You don't even entertain those. That is a matter, did I lose my, uh, I'm still on? Oh, all right, it sounded different, I'm sorry. You don't take on those one-on-ones. You don't, you don't take them, you don't investigate them, you don't do anything with them. That is to give the pastor some level of protection from an individual who's unhappy about one thing or another. However, if, the, if whatever the problem is in this man's life is evident to two or more, then not only do you take those on, but you take them on more publicly than you would an individual. Now, if you go back to Matthew 18, you see this idea that um, if your brother sins against you, go to him in private and uh, point him out his sin to him. And if he hears you, you've won your brother. If he, doesn't hear, if he doesn't listen to you, then you go back with one or two others. Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established, right? That was a carryover from Jewish law, Old Testament law where everything is established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. If, the man can, if, if that person continues in unrepentant sin, then there are meth, there's things laid out there as to how that you, uh, you take it to the church and, you, and you're dialing up um, pressure, you're dialing up bringing more and more to bear in order to bring this person to the point of repentance. Again, it's, it's about rescuing somebody who's going astray. Remember that Matthew 18, uh, where it talks about you know, how you're pursuing somebody who's caught up in a sin, is right on the heels of the parable of the hundred sheep. And one of them wanders away. And the shepherd leaves the 99, he goes after the one. It's about rescuing the one. It's about restoring the one. That's the whole premise for, uh, for confronting people over the issue of sin. 
Now, when it comes to a pastor, if you have a pastor who is continuing in sin, then that is to be dealt with publicly. Now, publicly, I don't think is going to include taking it down to the local newspaper and publishing it there, but it is to be public within the confines of the church. And so, if you have a man who is caught up in sin and it is known to a number of people, then you deal with it in a public fashion. And you do that intentionally. Why? What does it say? So that others will be fearful of sinning. And so, again, when you're talking about someone who's in a position of leadership in the church, you're not just dealing with the man. You're also dealing with those who the man's ministry affects. If you have somebody who is falling into sin and is in danger of is wandering astray, if he's in a position of leadership, what, is, what can you very well anticipate? Others will follow. Thank you. Boy, you all are quiet this morning. You're giving me the, the cold look. Which will make this go a lot faster. That is true. So you're also helping to protect the flock. fact of the matter is, when you look at the, and we have looked at length at the character qualifications for leadership, right? Are they unique? Are those character qualities unique? Okay, yeah. Some of you are giving me, well, no. They're not, right? Uh, pastors are to be hospitable. Are all Christians to be hospitable? Well, yeah. They're to be kind. They're to be gentle. I don't know if you've caught the emphasis on gentleness in 1 Timothy. It's everywhere. In fact, we're going to run into it again today. And so it's, it's not to be... Uh, you're not to have heavy-handedness. You're not to have pastors that are overbearing that are, you know, that, that are browbeaters who, um, who tower over, who, um, you know, yes, are you to encourage? Absolutely. Are you to admonish? Yes. Are you to bring biblical heat when that heat is warranted? Absolutely. But it's always to be done in a spirit of gentleness. Because again, what is the intended purpose? Restoration. You are trying to rescue someone. You're trying to guide them along. And so again, um, yes, you command, you prescribe, you command and teach these things. But it's always in the aspect of come with me. It's not sitting at the back 
or standing at the back and trying to force people in a particular direction. It's you lead from the front. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so it's, it's leading by example. And so again, the one thing that you cannot have, you cannot foster, you cannot tolerate, is leaders that are living in unrepentant sin. You cannot have that. And boy, I tell you, if, if anybody on the pastoral staff here, anybody on the deacon board here, if they are in, if they are living in a manner that is consistent, unrepentant sin, then that has got to be taken on and it has to be taken head on. And one of the ways that you can help avoid having a future problem is the third area that Paul deals with here. If you don't want to have problems with people in leadership down the road, pick good leaders at the beginning. That makes sense. And so he leads in with, you, you don't do this. Um, in fact, we should stop and go back to this. How serious is Paul about this topic of, of not tolerating unrepentant sin in leadership? Uh, he's, he's a little worked up about this, right? I charge you, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His holy angels. I'm calling in everybody in heaven who has access to the things that are unseen, right? You know, we have the things that are seen, we have things that are unseen, we have visible kingdoms, we have invisible kingdoms. Basically, everybody in the heavenly realm is, I'm charging you by all of them that you do not show partiality here. This, this, this threshold applies to everybody. Nobody gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. Founding pastors don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. The newest guy on the board doesn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. You deal with everybody, and it's the same standard for all. Verse 22, don't lay hands on anyone too hastily. Now, the idea here sometimes, we, uh, as that is applied, is um, when you look at too hastily, meaning you don't want to pick on somebody who's too young. And that is a legitimate concern. Um, you do want to have somebody who has some maturity. In fact, earlier he talked about um, don't, lay, uh, don't choose someone who is a new convert. Uh, when you have somebody who is new in the faith and all of a sudden you put them in a position of responsibility, what is one of the dangers that they specifically will face? Pride. You know. And so, and again, remember, you don't get, you don't lay hands on somebody in that way because they will fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
That's what happened with Satan. Satan gets to the point where uh, I'm, not, I'm not content being, you know, under God. I want to be like him. I want to be right up there, equal with him. I want to be a competitor or a rival to God. Now what right off the bat is a problem with that? Does God have any rivals? None. None. There's none like him. There's none other. There's none beside. There's, um, somebody came up with a little, um, I can't think of it, anacrostic or whatever, below, B-E-L-O-W. There is none beside him. There's none else. There's none like him. There's none other. There is none with him. You find all of those in Isaiah. So God is utterly unique. There, he has no rival. He has no competition. God doesn't have to break a sweat because he's never in, in danger. No one's ever even going to come close to being a threat to him. He alone knows the beginning from the end. He alone is everywhere at the same time. He alone is all-powerful. He alone is all-good, all-wise. All of those omnis only apply to him. They don't apply to anybody else, including the devil. Satan can't compete with God. And so, because God is utterly sovereign. So the idea here, if you don't do a full, proper analysis and examination of the man's character, then you run the risk of putting somebody into a position where they don't really belong. And again, the fallout is not just going to affect that man. The fallout's going to affect the flock as well. So, don't do that because when you do, you end up having some responsibility in the fallout for his sin. So this isn't something that is innocuous. This isn't something that is uh, hypothetical. It's none of those things. These are very real. We've experienced that here now, haven't we? Now, some of you folks are newer, and you're looking and you're going, what in the world are you talking about? And I'm glad that you would look and go, I have no idea of which you speak. And I'm thankful for that. Those that have been here for a good while, we've gone down this road before. And it wasn't pretty. And so, don't do that. Now skip down to verse 24. I'll come back to 23 here in a second. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Now the idea here is that uh, some people, you don't necessarily have to do a lot of investigation, especially when you're well-known. 
if you have somebody who's been in the congregation for a good while and they've been in the congregation in such a way that they're not the 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 last one to come in they sit in the very back and you know five minutes before the final amen they're already out the door you don't get a chance to get to know somebody in that way but as you get to know people you get to understand what their strengths are what their weaknesses are and you get a picture as to their character and so some people you can look at and and when a name comes up um, uh, you know, would you consider so-and-so as a potential pastor here? And you would look and some, you know what? No, for one reason or another. And not necessarily um, permanent reasons. Perhaps somebody just isn't quite mature enough in the faith or mature enough in, um, in their character so that it's, you know, no, we need to wait on this one versus somewhere uh, that's really not a good place for them for one reason or another if they have a character issue that is, that is going to be disqualifying for them. And so some are obvious. Some only come out as you look intently in an evaluation of someone's character as you dig as you talk to their family, as you talk to other people. Remember, one of the things for being in a position of leadership is you gotta have a good reputation with those who are outside. You have to have a good reputation. You don't have to be one who has the approval of the world, not in the sense that you are a friend of the world, but absolutely in the sense that you don't have just a good reputation inside these walls, in your business. Do you have honest business dealings with other people? That is a place where people outside the church would be able to have input. And if all of a sudden, if you have a man who, um, as the saying would be, when he's in the pulpit, he's like an angel, and when he's out of it, he's like somebody else. And I can't remember the exact way that it gets worded, but the point is, is that you've got somebody who lives two different lives. That's why you go through and you take the time to examine and, and see what exactly the man's character is. If it is something that would be a problem in the church, you'll find it. That's the intent. Vice versa as well. Some works are evident in a good light right off the bat. And those people, you know, the further you dig, the more you find. And you look and you go, you know, here's somebody who, you know, really, um, it doesn't matter how far in you go, what you get to, you know, as you get deeper is the same as what you have out here. So you don't have somebody who's a hypocrite. You don't have somebody who, you know, says one thing and does something entirely different. And in the middle of this, Paul throws in something uh, which is specifically for Timothy, right? Timothy, I know that you want to avoid any appearance of evil, and so you're not drinking wine at all. But you should probably take some wine as more of medicine than as a beverage. 
Does that make sense? In the first century, water was not like it is today. They didn't have water treatment plants. They didn't have um, the ability to go through and actually establish good drinking water. And so it was, it was actually pretty regular that you would have somebody who, you know, wine is something that is something that you would do for health reasons. What does Timothy want to avoid? Think, and now remember, where's Timothy ministering? He's at Ephesus. Has Paul written to that church before? Yes, he has. And in fact, in that letter to the Ephesians, how did he deal with the issue of alcohol? What did he tell them? Don't be drunk with wine, so don't give yourself over to the domination of alcohol. Rather, give yourself over to the domination of the Holy Spirit. Did he tell them, you can't do anything with this at all? No. We have people here who will occasionally have wine for dinner. Knock yourself out. I'm glad you enjoy it. It's wasted on me. I have no appreciation for it whatsoever. I never acquired that taste. And so I wouldn't know a good bottle of wine if you hit me over the head with it. And so now, if you're consistently drinking to the point where it is impairing your judgment, there's a problem. So some people, to avoid that, don't drink at all. And that's fine. Again, remember that when you get into these areas where um, there is, there's basis and there's a reason for having difference of view as to exactly how you respond to this. Does the Bible say you cannot drink at all? No, it does not. And so, if you have somebody who, hey, I like to have a, 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 a glass of wine with my dinner, if it's a special occasion, great. If you have somebody who used to be an alcoholic, do you want to offer them wine? Probably not. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. It's out of concern for them, right? And so now you're into this issue here of how do you deal with uh, people on issues of conscience? And, you know, learning how to be gracious. If you have a preference, you don't push that preference on somebody else. And so, you, you know, you don't have people looking down on each other. So again, Timothy, you need to have a little wine because it'll help you with your health. Apparently he's got, you know, he's got digestive problems. And so, look, you don't have to be a teetotaler, but you do need to follow the other, you know, parameters for how to do that. Andrew. It was alcohol. It was wine. Um, so I don't know. 
Well, right. And, and so Andrew's saying that there have been some who have tried to say that wine wasn't wine, it was just grape juice, and so it's, you know, it avoids the alcohol issue. One of the things that we need to be careful of, and, 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 and we need to be careful of this, all right? Here at our church, we tend to take God's word pretty seriously. Now, that is a good thing. What is not a good thing is when you take God's word and you start to tweak it because you're trying to justify a particular response or a particular uh, attitude or a particular perspective. And so you try to tweak it just a little bit to, you know, well, you know, it really says this. That's Danger Will Robinson territory, all right? One of these days, I'm going to find that, a clip of that, and I'm going to play it so that you younger people will have an idea as to what in the world I'm talking about. There's a new one out? No wonder I'm trapped in the 60s. I have no idea. Does it have the robot in there? Does he do the Danger Will Robinson thing? Well, I'm glad they kept that. <laughs> All right, any questions on leadership and how you deal with leadership? Rick. Right. Yes. And so, no. And so the, the comment is uh, having it to where two or three um, have to bring the accusation against an elder uh, is also protecting the person who's coming. It's protecting from them bringing something that would be spurious. Um, and so, yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Any others? Donna. We don't entertain it if that person is alone and there's no corroboration for what the person is saying. Then, that is a good question. And, and the question is, okay, if you're not to entertain it, then how do you evaluate, you know, whether or not it's true? Um, number one, if the person has something, you take it to the other pastors. You don't know at that moment in time if you're the only one. You're the only one that you might be aware of. Now, if you bring something, um, you know, somebody said something or somebody is in a, in a, in a pattern of life, um, you absolutely you bring that forward. 
Now, if that person is alone and nobody else is, is bringing that forward, you, you've heard it, you're, you're aware that that is around, but you don't carry out an investigation thereof. Now, if all of a sudden other people start bringing forward that same thing, then it's not one. You have multiple. You're hearing this from, multi from several people. And so at that point, then that would trigger. Does that make sense? And so it's not, um, it's not ever to be that, um, again, that, that someone by virtue of being a pastor is just automatically protected from anything, from any accusation. Um, you know, as, as it says here in, in verse 24, the sins of some men are quite evident. They, they are going to be evident as that comes out. Others, you know, they're not quite evident at the beginning. And so again, depending on what it is, um, if it's an issue of character, that's going to come out eventually. Um, and if it's an issue of doctrine, uh, that's going to become apparent as well. I've had that same question, Donna, as to, as to how to do that. Um, and oftentimes, frankly, um, there's, you know, there's going to be discussions uh, amongst the pastors. Hey, what's going on with such and such? Uh, and hopefully you've got a relationship between the men that are on that board, that are, that are in that group, to where there's going to be able to be a free exchange of questions back and forth. And again, it's not for the issue of, of uh, bringing condemnation. It is we're concerned for the care of the flock. And so we need to make sure that, that we're above board and that, we're, um, that we are blameless and above reproach. Any other questions? Okay, chapter 6. So he just gets done. Morning. He just gets done now talking about pastors. And remember again, this was a letter. And letters do not have chapter breaks or verses. So as he's continuing on, as he finishes up with, with how do you deal with pastors, now he's going to move into how do you deal with slaves. Now, oh, let's just read it. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Now, slavery is one of these words in our country that has got a lot of baggage and a lot of connotations built in. 
slavery as it was practiced in our country was different than how slavery was practiced in the first century in the Roman Empire. Uh, there were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire. And there were a lot of very educated slaves. Just because you were a slave did not mean that you could not be in certain professions. And so you would have doctors, you would have attorneys, you would have people who are very educated, very professional, and very enslaved. So you were talking about a wide segment of society. Most often people were slaves. We did, they didn't have ethnic slavery in the Roman Empire. Now you might have somebody who was conquered as a people and those people could be taken as slaves, as, as, as prizes of war. You, you could have people who were born into slavery because their parents were slaves and they were then born into that family as a slave. You could have people who could sell themselves into slavery uh, in order to pay off a debt, in order to get ahead in life. There were all kinds of means by which a person could become a slave the church became unique because in the church, did it matter if you were a slave in the church? No, it doesn't matter if you're a slave in the church. So how do you handle the situation where you have somebody is a slave and becomes a pastor? All of a sudden you have a man who is enslaved in life, socially, yet in the church, all of a sudden, he has a position of leadership. And boy, does it really get weird if his earthly societal master is also a believer and a member in his church. So here, when it comes to spiritual things, the slave is actually the one who has the position of authority, and the rest of the time, the other guy does. So, slaves, how do you, react, how do you interact with people? Now, it's important that we realize, and again, because of other things that Paul is going to talk about in this chapter, what is absent from Paul's instruction to slaves. And look, can I tell you something? It's absent everywhere Paul talks to slaves. So if you go to Colossians, same message. If you go to Ephesians, same message as here. What's missing? What is, what is Paul not telling slaves to do? Paul never talks about eliminating slavery, ever. The only place he even refers to it, even nudges up against that. And I forgot to look up where the passage is. Um, he talks about if, you were, if you're born a slave and, and you're like that, don't seek to change that. Now, if you have the chance to, to, to get your freedom, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, if you have the chance to get your freedom, okay. 
what does Paul stress instead when it comes to dealing with situations of life? Honey? 1 Corinthians 7? Good job, Andrew. Thank you, hon. Um, what does Paul stress to people in general when it comes to the situations, the circumstances of life? Humble service. I'm looking for one word that starts with a C. Contentment. If you have the ability to change something, okay. But if you don't, how do you deal with that? You learn how to be content. What is contentment, by the way? You're killing me this morning. What's contentment? Accepting God's providence. Accepting God's providence? Anybody want to add to that? Finding joy, resting. Okay, contentment looks at the idea that, again, God is sovereign. So God controls all the circumstances that you and I face in their entirety, right? God is in control of that. And in fact, what do we know because of that? What else do we know? He's not just in control of all of those things. What else is he doing with those circumstances? He's working for our good. He's working all things after the counsel of his own will, right? Ephesians 1.11. And we know that for those who love him, he is also using all of those and working them for our good, right? Romans 8.28. So the idea here being that when I recognize that God is in fact in control of these things, and I am not, this is where God has put me, then I need to look at this situation with the aspect that this is what God has brought, therefore I need to ex not just accept fatalistically, I need to accept it joyfully, as you brought out, with the idea that God knows better than I do. Therefore, I need to put my thinking in line with what God is desiring. And so the idea of contentment is, you can take that word and you can put satisfaction. I'm not dissatisfied. I'm not at a low boil. You know, I can keep up a good public face, but inside, you know, the bubbles are coming up because I don't think God's really being just with me. And in fact, the contentment that we're to have is if God is meeting our basic needs, then we need to be content with that. Paul exemplified that himself, right? I've learned how to have a lot, and I've learned how to have a whole lot of nothing. I've learned how to be content either way. Because the fact of the matter is, I'm eating. Now, I may not be having five-course meals, but I'm not dying of starvation. Paul, in, in, in fact, when Paul is writing these things, when he wrote, I have learned to be content in any situation, where was he and who was he writing to? He's writing to the Philippians, and where was he? He's in prison. 
So Paul, uh, in fact, why was Paul in prison? What's the reason Paul's in prison? It's not just preaching the gospel. He put himself there, right? He appealed to Caesar. What's that going to result in? He's going to have a trial before Caesar, but that means he's going to go to Rome, and he's going to be kept in the Huskal until such time as he gets around to having that hearing. Sam? Contentment is an expression of hope. The trouble is no trouble at all, knowing what's coming. You know, um, there's a, an outline. Um, I think it was Jay Adams came up with this. At least that's the first place that I heard it. Um, he wrote a little book, uh, God and Your Trouble. And in that book, it's, he's going through Romans 8. Uh, and, you know, God is in my trouble. Because God's sovereign, God knows what's going on with me. Second point, he's up to something. What's happening to me is not pointless. It's not, you know, happenstance. He's up to something. Third point, he's up to something good. And so not just, you know, not just that he's aware of it and I'm somewhere on the back burner of his mind. No, He's up to something good, but there's a fourth point. And if you don't do this fourth point, you can live a life of, yeah, I understand that God's doing it. You will be the Eeyore of Christianity if you don't do the fourth one. The fourth point is, I need to buy in. I need to look at this the way that God is looking at it, not, well, I know that God's going to work all this out. And I know that someday this is not going to be this way. And I'll be happy then. Is that contentment? No, it's not. In fact, what is it? It's called Missouri. <laughs> That's misery. And it's self-inflicted. That's self-inflicted. That's not because of your circumstances. It's because of how you view the God who's in control of your circumstances. That's what it's about. So again, this idea of contentment is I'm in a place, if, if I'm born a slave and I don't have the ability to purchase my freedom, I don't have the, then I need to be content with where God has put me. Does God know I'm a slave? Yeah, he does. Did God put me there specifically? Yes, he did. And again, I realize that, you know, uh, <laughs> if I have cancer, why do I have cancer? Because God wants me to have it. If I am having difficulties in a particular area, 
if there are, if there are things being imposed upon me by others and I don't have any control over what it is that they're doing to me, why is that happening? Because God wants that to happen. God didn't give Job advance warning. Did God have a purpose behind all of those things that happened to Job? And not just with Job. God is the ultimate multitasker. He takes the same situations, the same circumstances, but they affect a whole bunch of different people in different ways, and God's using that in every one of them. And so again, when we say that we trust him, your demeanor from day to day in the middle of that is going to be a good snapshot of just how much you really do. That's why you could have somebody like Paul in prison, chained, and yet, what's he say? Rejoice. I have a captive audience. This guy can't get away from me. So slaves, your demeanor and your conduct had better match what you say. When you talk about, I have been set free from sin, I've been redeemed, I have been set at true liberty, then act in such a way that you don't bring reproach to the name. If you have a sour disposition, that belies, that contradicts the message of the gospel. Don't do that. And by the way, verse 1 is written for slaves who have unbelieving masters. The word that's used here for master is the word from which we get despot. Now, our use of that word, a despot, is that a positive or a negative connotation? It's always negative in our, in our culture, that word despot. It was not always negative in the first century and the way that you know it, because despot is used to describe Jesus. A despot was not necessarily somebody who was evil. A despot was somebody who had absolute authority. And that could be for good or for bad. And so it's actually used of Jesus. So your master, is one who has absolute authority. Now, absolute authority with air quotes, right? Because that absolute authority is actually subject to what other authority? God's. And he may do something that he intends for evil. And we can have confidence that what is God going to do with that? He's going to work it for good because he's able to even control the things that, um, that evil men would do. And so it doesn't matter who the, who the master is. It doesn't matter if he's a believer or not. In fact, if you have a master who's believing, you serve him all the more. You don't take advantage of him because he's a brother. You don't, you don't expect that he's going to somehow cut you slack because you're a fellow believer. 
you serve him all the more. And so again, you serve the one who is good to you, you serve the one who's not. And you serve them with the same heart, you show them the same respect, you don't give them any reason whatsoever to say that this guy is a bad slave and you know what? He happens to be a Christian and so he must not, Christianity must not be much if that's the example of what it is to be a Christian. And so again, you don't live in such a way that you bring reproach to the name. You live in such a way that you bring honor to the Christ that you say you serve. Does that make sense? And boy, I tell you what, that has all kinds of applications for us now, doesn't it? I might not be enslaved to somebody, but boy, I tell you what, I'd better be careful when I start treating people differently on how I perceive their relationship with God to be. And just, you know, blowing off people who aren't brothers or sisters in the faith. Verse 3, he goes right back, and again, <laughs> he, he's beating a constant drum here in this book. He keeps coming back to it. And if he keeps coming back to it, then what must it be? It must be a real problem, right? If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So here you've got these guys, they're not interested in shepherding a flock. They're not interested in caring for the needs of others. They're interested in winning an argument. They're interested in, in concentrating on something that you know, they've, they've, they've just got to be a little edgy. They can't be satisfied with just proclaim, proclaiming the truth. They've got to be bringing all this other stuff in. And, and, and so you end up with these questions that, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Who cares? Who really cares? Oh, no, it's five. No, 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 it's at least 14. And you're, and you're fighting about this, that, and the other, and why? The key to understanding why some of this, when you're, when you're getting into these issues that are, really don't matter at all, what is the response of the people having the discussion? Is it envy? Is it strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction. So here, so what's the fruit of what it is that they're trying to teach? What's the fruit? Is it unity or disunity? It's disunity. Is it harmony 
or is it friction? It's friction. Is it something that is, uh, I'm thinking the best of people, or I'm thinking the worst of people? I'm assigning the worst to people. So, do you see how, if you want to have an idea as to what the content of what is being preached is, and what is being taught is, what is the outworking of it in the people who are listening? Is it promoting deeds of the flesh, or is it promoting the fruit of the Spirit? If it's not promoting the fruit of the Spirit, there's a problem. And you're not going to promote the fruit of the Spirit by teaching error. You can't get there from here. And so again, he, he, he keeps pointing Timothy to there's consequences for straying away from the truth. There's consequences for you. There's consequences for the flock. And another way that it's influenced, that it's demonstrated in the life of the leader is what is his mentality toward money? Is he driven by money? Is he driven by the accumulation thereof? There are people, and there's plenty of names that you can attach to this, wouldn't be hard, who, why are they in the ministry? It's not because they're looking to shepherd sheep. For many of them, it's because they're looking to fleece the sheep. Sheep are defenseless, right? Therefore, easy prey, easy target, easy mark. All right, questions to this point? We're not going to go an hour nine today. Let's, uh, let's call it here. And then we'll fit. Uh, now, we're not going to have Sunday school next week. Uh, it's the day after Christmas, and so we're not going to have Sunday school. They're not going to be meeting up in fundamentals. So we'll just be coming in for the main service at 1030 next week. Okay? So we'll finish up chapter six uh, the first Sunday in January, and that will leave us four weeks to cover the four chapters in 2 Timothy. So we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to motate in order to make sure that we get through all of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that, again, that you, you give us so um, thorough instruction, both as to how to uh, be a member, be a sheep, be part of the flock in your church, in your body, and also as to as to the type of men to seek for leadership as, and, and how to hold them accountable. Thank you that in Christ we're all free and we have liberty that uh, those that are still enslaved to sin have no clue, they have no concept as to what freedom that is. Lord, thank you that you've given us the freedom, you've given us the ability to serve you and to, you've given us the ability now to obey you. 
And so, Lord, help us as, as we encounter the, all of our different situations in life that we would trust you, that we would trust your goodness, that we would trust your word, that in fact you are sovereign, you are over all these things, and, and you bring them to us for our good. And Lord, help us to, to change the way that we view difficulty, that we would come to the point where we could consider it all joy when we are in tr encountering trouble, because we know that from that we develop patience, and, and, and these other virtues that, that only happen when there's trouble. Oh, Lord, help us to, to not be the proud people that we so often are. Our dissatisfaction so often is simply because we want it easy. And we don't want to do things. And we don't want to have to endure the things that, that you deem are necessary. And yet, you're deeming them for our good. And so, Father, help us to trust you. Thank you again for how good you are to us. In Christ's name, amen.